You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We'll be taking a little bit of a departure from our normal course in the Gospel of John to look at a passage that gives some details about the resurrection of Christ and some of the implications of that. So we'll be in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verse 30 and 31. When you found your place, I'd ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, which tells us about a risen Savior and all of the implications of that. And as we look at this passage, talking about the resurrection of Christ and what that means for believers and for unbelievers, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to this truth and make us to see Christ and what he has done in all of his glory. And may we be wooed by that. May we be awed by it. Please fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our risen Savior and our risen King. We ask this in His name. Amen. The resurrection is packed full of implications for both believers and for unbelievers. For believers, if the resurrection of Christ actually happened, if that is true, then it means that everything that He has said about Himself is true. Every claim He made concerning Himself is true. It means that He is the Son of God. It means that He was God in human flesh that He is the Messiah of Israel, that He is the King of Israel, that He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of Peace, the coming Son of David who will reign on David's throne. All of that is true. If the resurrection of Christ is true, then it means that our salvation rests not upon cleverly devised fables or myths or, or notions or fantasies. It's not wishful thinking. It's based upon the historical reality that Jesus of Nazareth died, was crucified on a Roman cross, and three days later He rose bodily from the dead and presented Himself alive to His disciples with many infallible proofs. And there were eyewitnesses of that historic event. If the resurrection of Christ is true, then it means that what He has said concerning the salvation of His people is true and will actually happen. It means that He will, in fact, save all whom the Father has given to them. He will hit to Him. He will gather them in. He will draw them to Himself. He will save them. He will secure them. He will sanctify them for all of eternity. And He will keep them safe and secure. It means that our faith results in salvation and the forgiveness of sins and complete justification in the sight of God. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, it means that we look forward to His return. It means that it's true that He has gone away to prepare a place for us and that He will come again and He will receive us to Himself and we will be with Him forever. It means that we will spend eternity in heaven. If the resurrection of Christ is true for believers, it means that He will also raise us up together in our bodies and we will spend eternity in glorified bodies just as He is in a glorified body even now in heaven. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, But if the Spirit of Him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised up Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit which dwells in you, or who dwells in you. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. That means we will rise too. If the resurrection of Christ is true, if it actually happened, then He is returning again just as He promised He would. And He is going to set up an eternal kingdom. And He will reign on the throne of His father David over the house of Israel in Jerusalem. And He will fulfill those promises. Now those are just some of the implications of the resurrection of Christ for believers. 
and we think and we dwell upon the implications for us as Christians uh, all the way throughout the course of the year, not just on Easter Sunday. And any time that our thoughts linger on the resurrection, the reality of that, it ought to thrill us, it ought to excite us, it ought to instill in us confidence and encourage us greatly. But today I want to look at the implications of the resurrection of Christ for unbelievers. Now if you're a Christian, you're saying, what? I came here today and wanted to find out what the resurrection means for me. There's plenty in this text for believers as far as what the resurrection of Christ means to us. But we're going to kind of look at what the resurrection means for unbelievers if Christ is risen then there are implications for unbelievers as well. The good news for Christians is that if Christ is risen, then everything He has said is true. And the bad news for non-Christians is that if Christ is risen, then everything He has said is true. You see, that cuts both ways. And today we're going to look at the implications of the resurrection for unbelievers. And there is encouragement here for us as believers too. If nothing else, we can at least look at what we have been saved from and how God has delivered us from that, and what the resurrection means to us in terms of salvation and the judgment that we will not face. And so, as believers, we're going to get plenty out of this. We're going to look at the the implications of the resurrection of Christ for unbelievers. Acts chapter 17, we're going to be looking specifically at verse 30 and 31. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, you know how this works. We can't just parachute into a verse as if it is divorced from its context without any understanding of what has led up to that. we got to set a little bit of context for that verse to help us appreciate what it means. And one of the drawbacks of having not gone through the entire book of Acts and seen how this passage is unfolding is that when we land in a passage like this, we kind of are unsure as to exactly what it is that Paul is drawing to a conclusion. Because you'll notice that verse 30 starts with a conclusion word. Therefore, and this really is the conclusion of a sermon that he begins in verse 22. So let me set up the context a little bit for you. Chapter 17 is part of Paul's second missionary journey. He started chapter 17 by going into the city of Thessalonica. And in verse 3 it says that he went into the synagogue of the Jews and there he began to explain and give evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So he went into the Jewish synagogue and he began to show them that their Messiah must suffer and must rise from the dead. And once they had seen that in the Old Testament Scripture, Paul was able to say to them, now there is a man who claimed to be the Messiah, who was the Messiah, who himself suffered and he rose from the dead. And as a result of his preaching there in Thessalonica, there was a small, vibrant, healthy church started in the city of Thessalonica. But some of the Jews didn't respond very well to his preaching and his proclamation of a Jewish Messiah, feeling threatened for for whatever reason. They opposed the Apostle Paul and ran him out of the city of Thessalonica. So Paul and Timothy and Silas, they went to the city of Berea. And that takes us to verse 10. In the city of Berea, Paul did the same thing that, as was his custom, went into the synagogue of the Jews and began to proclaim Christ to them probably giving evidence and showing that their Messiah had to suffer and rise again, and then saying to them, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And in Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They began to examine the things that Paul said, and to examine them and to test them by Scripture to see if what Paul said was actually true. And the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul had gone to Berea and began to preach the Gospel. So the Jews in Thessalonica followed and chased Paul into Berea and ran Paul out of Berea. And so Paul left the city of Berea. He left Silas and Timothy in the city of Berea. And Paul went on to the city of Athens. And that takes us to verse 16. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, he had left, remember, Timothy and Silas in Berea. 
And Paul was waiting in Athens for them. And as he's walking through the marketplace, having conversations with people, undoubtedly preaching the gospel out in the open air, out in the streets, conversing with merchants, etc., Uh, he noticed that the city was full of idols, and this provoked the Apostle Paul. He was vexed in his spirit as he saw the idolatry of these lost people who worshipped idols instead of the one true God. Verse 17, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Interesting word, that word idle babbler literally is the word for seed picker. And it referred to somebody who just sort of picked up ideas like a chicken picks up various seeds around a, a, a hen house or a courtyard. Um, that's what they, it was sort of a, a derogatory word that they were using to label the Apostle Paul. A seed picker. Somebody just sort of grabs his philosophies from all over the place, picks them up and, and brings something new to Athens. What does this seed picker or this babbler, idle babbler, wish to say? Others said he seems to be proclaimers of strange deities because what was he doing? preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. In other words, that was the ancient form of Facebook. They spent their time just scrolling through all the theories of the day, listening to something new, waiting for something new to come up. That was what they were doing. And so they brought Paul to the Areopagus, the Areopagus, the word Areopagus means hill of Ares. Ares was the god of war. The Romans called him Mars. So that was where they get the term Mars Hill. So the Areopagus was Mars Hill. Now in ancient days, the Areopagus was the high court of the city of Athens. That was where they would try criminal cases. But by Paul's day, they were under Roman rule, and the Romans did not allow individual cities to try criminal cases. But they still had this, this high court that they believed was established by Athena, and Apollos, and so they still had the high court, and they kind of, instead of trying criminal cases there, that was where all the philosophers and the brilliant people, the elitists, the thinkers of the day, the educators, they would meet there. It was kind of like a like a university campus, the smoking room where all the profs get together and smoke cigars and discuss philosophy. That was the Areopagus. So it had become a court where sort of where all the intellectuals met. Well, Paul came into town. He was preaching something new to them, and since they lived to hear something new, They wanted to give him a hearing at the Areopagus up on Mars Hill. So Paul never wanted to turn down an opportunity to preach the gospel open air to any crowd whatsoever. He took them up on their invitation. And he went up onto the Areopagus and he stood before all of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers of his day, all of these brilliant intellectuals, the leading cultural, brilliant, educated minds of Athens. And he preaches the message that begins in verse 22. Now this message falls into three points. I'm going to give you the three points. We're just going to go through the message because really we're trying to get down to verse 30, remember. So Paul's message falls into three points. Number one, he tells them that there is one true God who is the creator of all things. That's verse 22 to 24. Then Paul tells them there is one true God who is the sustainer of all things. Verses 25 to 29. Then Paul tells them that there is one true God who is the judge of all things in verses 30 and 31. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And he is the judge of all things. So let's read through his message and kind of catch the highlights beginning in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Was he complimenting them? Was he saying that that was a good thing? Not necessarily. This is what he is observing. Now he's beginning with some common ground. As you see in verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, Paul, as he had walking through the streets of Athens, saw an altar to the unknown God. 
It was said at that time that those in Athens had more, there were more idols in Athens than there were people. They had thousands and thousands of altars. And it was said in the Paul's day that you couldn't turn and look any direction in Athens without your eye looking at an idol. They had idols everywhere. Well, they were a very religious people in the sense that they worshipped all of these idols and had all kinds of different idols for all kinds of different gods that they believed created all the different things that we see around us. So they were religious people, they were idolatrous people, and they didn't want to take the chance that they might not be worshiping one particular god, so they made an altar to the unknown god, to an unknown god. That way, they have all their bases covered. So we worship the god of fire, and the god of wind, and the god of earth, and the god of the water, and the god of Hades, and the god of the afterlife, and with the god of birth, and the god of fertility. Make sure we got them all covered, we'll make an altar to the unknown god, and that, well, that way, if we ever happen to stand before that unknown God, we can at least say, we worshipped you in your unknown form. Well, Paul begins with that common ground. I noticed you have an altar to an unknown God. That God that you are ignorant of, that you know nothing of, that is the God that I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now what the Apostle Paul does is as a monotheistic statement. There is one God who has made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He is the creator of all things. Now that, by default, rules out all of their other idols, all of their other gods. He dispenses with every idol in Athens with that one sentence. There is one God who is the creator of all things. And this God is a God that does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now in the city of Athens, and even from the site in which Paul preached, you could look around out over the city of Athens and see temple after temple after temple where they housed their gods. And they had all of their worship services. And they served these gods. And they dusted their gods off. And they polished them up. And they shined them to make them look really pretty. And they did all of these activities to serve these gods. And Paul says, the God that you do not know, this one God, He is the maker of all things. He's the creator of all things. And He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, that, that means that He is sovereign. That means that He is exalted. That means that He is high. He is holy. He is lifted up. He's not like an idol. He's not weak. He's powerful. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. See what Paul has done there? He has described in that, few, in that brief sentence there the opposite of all of the gods that they had worshipped. Not only is this God the creator of all things, He is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 25. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. This God that, that you serve, you dust Him off, you polish Him up, you make sure that He's dry when it rains, you make sure that He's indoors. You have to move Him from one mantle to another. You have to serve Him and offer food before Him and do all of these things to make your God happy. The one true God whom you do not know is not a God who is served by human hands. In other words, He doesn't need us. We need Him. See, for all of the idols, the Athenians thought all of their idols needed them for something. And God says, this God, the unknown God, is the creator of all things. He is also the sustainer of all things. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to sustain Him. He doesn't need you to glorify Him. He doesn't need you to please Him. You don't add anything to God by your existence. Your existence doesn't make Him any happier than He would have been in eternity past had you never lived or had He never created anything. He doesn't need anything. He has no needs that we meet. Verse 26, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God is sovereign over where men live, when men live, who lives where, where the nation's boundaries are at, which nation takes over which nation. Not only is He the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, He providentially rules all things. And He determines who's going to live where and what the boundaries of every people is going to be. Verse 27, He has done this that we would seek Him if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. In other words, he, he is not a God who sort of wound everything up and then just let it run and He's off in some far distant corner of the universe and we're desperately trying to get His attention. Everything that God has done has been done to show that He is very near to all of us. 
This God who is the creator of all things has made himself known and evident in all of creation so that no man can stand before God and say, I did not know that you exist. I did not have evidence that you exist. No man can say that because this God who is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things is providentially ruled in all things so as to make it shown known to all things and all people that he exists and that he is not far away. Verse 26, for in him we live and move and exist, and even as some of your own poets have said, we are also his children, not meaning that we're all God's children, we're all going to heaven, but we are all his offspring in the sense that we are all created by this one true God. He's returning to the fact that this God created all things. Being then the children of God, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now, some people say that what Paul is doing in this message is that he is trying to take the gospel message, he's trying to contextualize it, trying to make it culturally relevant. He's being hip. You see how he's quoting their own prophets? And if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he'd be wearing skinny jeans with tip tears in the, the knees and a little uh, soul patch here and making the gospel contemporary and acceptable so that it's just, he's just trying to get it, get it in the terms that the culture can embrace without having to change anything. He's trying to contextualize it, make it relevant, make it accessible to everybody, make it cool. He's not doing anything like that. And we didn't go into what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed because we didn't have time to do that. When we went through this passage and preached through the book of Acts like five decades ago or whenever that was, uh, we took five messages to go through what we just went through there in about five minutes. Five messages. Now, listen, the Apostle Paul was not taking the, 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 he's not taking the gospel and trying to make it contemporary. He's not kind of to contextualize it. What the Apostle Paul just did is he took the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophies and he stripped them bare naked on their own turf. He systematically assaulted every presupposition that they had. He systematically assaulted and refuted every false theology, every contradictory philosophy, every man-made pagan idea that these Athenians had. He has stripped them bare. He took them to the woodshed and he taught them a lesson publicly in front of all of them. He showed them the contradictory nature of their own pagan philosophy, their own ungodly thinking, their own man-made ideas, and he, he, he has humiliated them in front, of, in front of everybody. And not only has he done this, but he has implicated them in the sin, the high crime of idolatry. You ought not to think that the divine nature is like silver or gold or things that are made with man's hands and man's minds. Your idols that you have to take from one mantle and transport to another, you are guilty of the sin of idolatry because this God, this unknown God, whom you admit you are ignorant of, this God who created all things, sustains all things, providentially rules all things, this God does not dwell in temples made of hands, and you have failed to give Him the honor that He is due. So now He has systematically stripped them of their presuppositions. He has removed from them their pagan philosophies. He has contradicted everything that they believe. If the Apostle Paul was trying to take the Gospel message and make it culturally relevant, he couldn't have done a poorer job than he does right here. But that's not what he was trying to do. He was assaulting their pagan theology, their pagan philosophies, and their pagan culture with the truth of the Gospel. And he has stripped them bare. And he has implicated them in the high crime of idolatry. So now the question remains, what will God do with idolaters such as them? Verse 30. Now we get to the text that I'm ready to preach. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now there is a judgment coming. Not only is God the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, God is the judge of all things. He's the judge of all things. And there are four things about this judgment that the Apostle Paul reveals here. There's the promise of judgment. There's the pattern of this judgment. There's the person who will be the judge. And then there's the proof of judgment. 
First look at the promise of judgment, beginning in verse 30. Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. That is the promise of coming judgment. And when Paul says, therefore, God has overlooked, in verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, he is not suggesting that, that God was winking at sin or that He was ignoring their sin or that God is simply going to sort of uh, put a, turn a blind eye to their sin and go ahead and let them into heaven. That's not what he is suggesting. He is saying to them, you are culpable of idolatry. You have, you have worshipped a God that does not exist, one that you do not know, and you have worshipped Him in a way that it, you have worshipped, uh, sorry, you have worshipped, you have not worshipped. Let's try that. You have not worshipped the God whom you do not know, who exists, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, and you are guilty of worshipping idols and worshipping those idols in unacceptable ways and in unacceptable means. And for that reason, you are guilty of idolatry. Now, God up to this point has overlooked that sin, not in the sense of it, it does not count, but in the sense that He has not swiftly brought about the judgment that that sin rightly deserves. And this is how God deals with all sinners. God overlooks in that sense, in not giving them swift judgment, the sins of all people. What would the world look like? How would things be different if every time some sinners sinned, God swiftly gave them exactly what they would deserve? Now you know that that's not how God works. He's long-suffering, and He is gracious, and He is kind. And it's not that He is turning a blind eye, it is that that judgment is delayed. And this is what Paul says in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 16. In generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. That is to say that God has allowed man to trample his grace. God has allowed man to sin as he wants. He has allowed man to indulge his fleshly lust. And it's not that those sins are not going to be accounted for, but God has not brought that judgment to come. In other words, that judgment has been delayed. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. But now Paul says even though God has not brought swift judgment upon sinners for their sin, now God commands all men everywhere to repent. You see, it is foolish and wrong for sinners to think that because they can sin now and not suffer any immediate consequences, that they will never therefore suffer any consequences. That's foolishness. Just because God chooses to delay judgment does not mean that He is going to defer judgment entirely. The judgment will come. The judgment will be there. That's what Paul's saying. God is going to judge the world, and therefore... The incentive is to repent, that is to turn from sin, to turn from your wickedness. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. The Thessalonians, whom Paul had visited just two stops prior to the city of Athens, when he went into the synagogue and he preached and he went out in the market streets, uh, the streets and the marketplaces and preached, those people turned from their idols. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from one direction and turning a different direction. It is having a change of mind, a change of direction, a change of behavior, a change of thinking, a change of affections toward uh, God and about God and concerning sin. It is turning from sin to God. That is repentance. And so, though God has overlooked and passed over and He has forbeared in His long-suffering to not judge immediately the sins which have been previously committed, there is coming a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness. And so, all men everywhere should repent. They should turn from sin because, and here's the incentive for repentance, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He has fixed a day. Now we know that on God's calendar there is a day appointed for judgment. That day is certain. It is unalterable. It is not going to be changed. It's not going to be delayed. It's not going to be tabled for a later date. It's not going to be skipped over. We're not going to be 10,000 years into eternity and have God say, oh, I forgot to judge the world in righteousness. There is a day on God's calendar. We do not know when that is, but He knows when it is. And it may be soon. It may be a long ways off, but you are a fool to assume that it's going to be a long way off. 
And to think that God will never judge just because He hasn't judged up until now. There is coming a day. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Second Peter 3.7 says, But by His word the present heavens and earth are being kept and reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Romans 2.5, Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2.16, On that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Now notice the reference repeatedly in Scripture to this day, this day of judgment. This day is coming on which God will judge the world in righteousness. That is the promise. And so we are implored, we are begged. Sinners are, are, are begged to turn from their sin before they face that judgment. Romans 9, sorry, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this comes the judgment. And that's the promise not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 12, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. That is the promise of God that there is a judgment to come. Now second, I want you to notice the pattern of this judgment. Look at verse 30. Again, he is going to judge the world. Uh, he's declaring to all men everywhere they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's the pattern. It will be in righteousness. That is the, the pattern after which this judgment will come. God is going to judge the world and it's going to be a righteous judgment. And the standard against which he's going to judge all men is not each other. God is not going to judge me according to you. He's not going to test the two of us and see which one of us fared better. It's not going to be according to human law. It's not going to be according to man-made standards. It's not going to be according to human standards of goodness. What we may think is good or what we may think is evil. None of that is going to have any bearing on the day of judgment whatsoever. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. That is to say that his standard is perfect righteousness. Now, for a Christian, that is good news. That is very good news, believer. And I'll tell you why it is good news. Because the righteousness which God is going to demand on the day of judgment is the very righteousness that He has provided for us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That righteousness which we get imputed to us at the moment that we believe upon His Son, that standard of righteousness we have met, we have, and we have been declared righteous, not because of what we have done, not even because we have exercised some faith, but that righteousness has been imputed to us on the basis of what Christ has done. We are righteous not because of our works, but because of Christ's works. Because He is righteous, we are righteous if we are in Him. And so on the day of judgment for the Christian, the righteousness of God is not something that will at all terrify us. Not only because that righteousness has been provided for us, but listen, I, my sin has already been judged on Christ on the cross. And because of that, and because God is righteous, He will not judge that same sin twice. He's not going to judge His Son and then turn around and judge me for that. So because God is righteous and because His standard is righteousness, I have every confidence that having been found in Christ on the day of judgment, having been given that righteousness which God demands, that God will not exact from me the penalty that Christ has already paid on my behalf. He cannot judge that sin twice because He is righteous. And it would be unrighteous for Him to do so. And so we lean into the righteousness of God. We embrace the righteousness of God. On the day of judgment, the righteousness of God is my cry. Not the righteousness of Jim Osmond, but the righteousness that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. But listen, for the unbeliever, that is the most terrifying thought of all. The fact that God would judge you according to a righteous standard, non-Christian, that's horrifying. Horrifying. And any unbeliever who hears those words, that they will be judged on the day of judgment by a righteous standard, by the righteousness of God, if you are, not, if you are an unbeliever and you are not terrified by that, it's because you don't understand what that means. You have no clue what that means. 
when every secret sin and every secret thought and every deed and every motive is laid bare and there is nobody to hide from and all the secrets of men are exposed and every deed you've done in darkness is exposed and every idle word you have spoken is brought before you. Every act of gossip, every act of slander, every act of blasphemy, every lie you've ever told, every lustful thought you've ever had is exposed on the day of judgment. And to be judged by that standard of righteousness, that is a horrifying thought. And if that does not make an unbeliever tremble, that unbeliever is only because that unbeliever has no idea what that means. Back in the book of Psalms, Psalm 9, verse 8 says, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Psalm 98, verse 9, Before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth, and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so we can have confidence that since God is going to judge and His standard is going to be righteousness, that perfect justice will be done. That makes a righteous heart sing. That perfect justice will be done. The unbeliever who stands before God will not get more than they deserve. They will get exactly what they deserve. But that is horrifying enough. That the unbeliever will get exactly what they deserve. That is horrifying. It is a motivation for Christians to preach the gospel and to share Christ. And it ought to cause us to delight. The justice, perfect justice will be done. The, the day of judgment is not going to, is, is not going to unfold with witnesses not showing up or evidence being corrupted or the guilty going free. When God judges, He will judge in righteousness and perfect justice will be done. That is the promise. That's the promise of judgment, the pattern of judgment. Now I want you to look at the person who is going to be this judge. Verse 31, He's fixed the day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. There is a man who is appointed to be this judge. That is what we read of in John chapter 5 when Jesus said, The Father has given all judgment to the Son. This one man who is God in human flesh, and that is what He claimed of Himself, who died and He rose again, this man is going to judge all men. This man is going to, all men are going to stand before this righteous judge and will get exactly what they have coming to them. And it will be a perfect judgment, a righteous judgment, and they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that man is obviously, Jesus Christ is obviously the one that Paul is talking about here because he says God raised him from the dead, which we'll look at in just a second. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and the judgment when all men will face. Acts 10, verse 42, Peter said to Cornelius, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, that judgment is described. Listen to this carefully. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the promise of judgment, the pattern of judgment, and the person who is going to act as that judge is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for Christians, that's good news. You know why it's good news? Because that one who is going to judge all men is the one who bore my sin in his own body on the tree. That's good news. He's the one who died for me and rose again. That's good news. All of my sin has been placed on Him. So I will stand before Him not as my judge, but as my Savior, as my advocate, as the one who mediates and my mediator between me and the Father. He is the one who has saved me and delivered me. He's the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd of the sheep who secures His people. This is the one I get to stand before. But for an unbeliever, that's horrifying news. 
Because it means that the one whose love and grace that that unbeliever has spurned for their entire life, whose sacrifice that unbeliever has accounted as nothing, will stand before that one and face him as their judge. And look last of all, the end of the passage, the proof of judgment. Again, verse 31. He has appointed him, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now you may say, and these Athenians, the Epicurean Stoic philosophers, could have said to Paul, you know, Paul, that all sounds really good. That sounds like great philosophy. That's true for you. It's not true for us. You have your truth. We have our truth. You have your way of looking at it. We have our way of looking at it. These are great ideas that you have, but who's to say that your reality is actually reality? Who's to say that your take on reality is actually the way that reality really is? What proof can you offer? What is the proof that there is coming judgment? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you want proof that there is a judgment to come? Paul points to the resurrection. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, says that Christ has been declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence that there is a judgment to come for this world and that all who are in Christ are attributed, accounted as righteous before Him and have eternal life and will escape that judgment. And the resurrection of Christ is also proof and evidence that the, when that judge, when the men stand before that judge, they will be judged in righteousness and they will get exactly what they deserve. The proof of the coming judgment is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, John, Jesus said in John chapter 5, the passage we read at the beginning of our, of our service today, Jesus in that passage ties his claim to be the Son of God and the judge of all the world with his power to give life to all men. The Father gives life to all men, even so the Son also gives life to whomever he wishes. He has the power of resurrection. And because he has raised even himself from the dead, and he rose from the dead victorious, that is the proof that he also has the power to judge all men and the authority to judge all men. Now what I want you to notice here is how the Apostle Paul has been building his case throughout this entire message. Now he gets to the very end of it, and he ties all of this. Everything he has said is tied to this one peg, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's tied everything to that. Everything hinges on that truth the resurrection of Christ. So consequently, if the resurrection of Christ is not a historical fact, if it did not in fact happen, if Christ is not risen, then everything that the Apostle Paul says has crumbled. It all crumbles to the ground. It's meaningless. If Christ is not risen, there is no judgment. There is no judge. There's no accountability for sin. There's there's no eternal reckoning for sin. There's no standard of righteousness. And Paul ties his entire argument, this entire message, to this one fact, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anybody listening to him in Athens could have traveled to Jerusalem to see if what the Apostle Paul said was true. And he ties it to the resurrection. Now listen, unbeliever, if Christ has not risen, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And you're nothing but worm food. We're all nothing but worm food. And Christians, you're the most miserable of all because you've given up things and placed your faith in an absolute myth and a lie and and a cleverly devised fable. You're, you're all a bunch of, man, dupes, idiots, deceived. You've got to be depressed if Christ is not risen. But if He is risen, then there's a judgment to come. And He will judge the world in righteousness. And God has proven this. He has given evidence of this by raising this judge from the dead. And all men will face Him. All men will face that judge. Now, if Paul wanted to avoid uh, um, offending these Athenians. He hasn't done a very good job of it, has he? Not a very good job of it. In fact, look at verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And some of them believed. Verse 34 says, but when he began to speak of the resurrection, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. They chuckled. 
resurrection of the dead? They, they were willing to listen to the Apostle Paul say that there's one God and you, you don't know Him. He created all things. And uh, this one God, He is the sustainer of all things. They didn't sneer at that. And they sat there and listened to the Apostle Paul talk about how this God has ruled in history and appointed the boundaries and habitations of all men and sovereignly rules over all of those things. And they didn't sneer at that. They listened to Paul tell them that, the, that this God that they did not know does not dwell in temples made with hands and that they are guilty of the sin of idolatry. They tolerated that, and they listened to the Apostle Paul tell them that they are going to be judged for that sin, and that God has appointed a man to judge them, and they didn't sneer at that. But when Paul mentioned the resurrection, <laughs> sneer. sneer and chuckle and chortle, and you can almost, you can almost anticipate and expect the, resur- the, the reaction of the crowd, can't you? And they began to sneer at that, the resurrection. Why? Because the Greeks didn't believe that any of their gods had the power to raise the dead. No, they did. They believed that many of their gods had the power to give life to dead people. But that wasn't why the Greeks chortled and and sneered. You know why it is that they rejected the idea of a resurrection? Because there was no room for thinking in the Greek mind for the resurrection of the body. To the Greek and Athenian way of thinking, to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the afterlife meant getting rid of this prison of the body. Not taking it into eternity with us. They, they wanted to be liberated from the body, not to be chained to this body all the way through eternity. So salvation for them was disposing of the body. And so they would get rid of the body without any attempt or, or, or without any desire to be bound to it again. And so when Paul mentions the resurrection, they sneered at this. According to legend, when the Areopagus was founded by the goddess Athena, Apollos at that founding ceremony, and again, this is all according to the Athenian legend of the Areopagus, Apollo said at that founding ceremony, when a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. Now that phrase, there is no resurrection, was the high creed of the Areopagus. That was the high creed of the Athenian highest court. There is no resurrection. And the Apostle Paul stood at the place that was founded by a God who said there is no resurrection, and he told them there is a resurrection. And not only that, but God himself has been raised from the dead in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't run from the doctrine of the resurrection. He didn't deny the doctrine of the resurrection. He didn't keep it quiet and hope to not offend them so that they would end up embracing his message. The Apostle Paul stood right in the place where their creed was, there is no resurrection, and said, there is a resurrection, and you're going to stand before the one who is, ju- who is resurrected, and he is going to be your judge. Does it sound like the Apostle Paul is trying to avoid offending these men? Does it sound like he's trying to contextualize the message? No, he's not. You know why he talked about the resurrection in the place where they denied the resurrection? Because the resurrection is the message. That is the gospel. That is the good news. It is good news to a believer because we believe that God is going to judge the world in righteousness through our Savior, the one whom we have trusted, the great shepherd of the sheep. Our great shepherd who looks out after us and has saved us and sanctifies us and secured us. That God, that Savior is going to judge all men in righteousness. That's good news to a believer. But to an unbeliever, that is the most terrifying news that you could possibly ever hear. Because guess what? God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And he's going to do this through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising that man from the dead. And so the question to you, unbeliever, is when you stand before that judge, are you going to stand before that judge clothed in the ragged robes of your own self-righteousness? Or are you going to stand before that judge clothed in the righteousness of the Savior, which you have by faith in Jesus Christ? So I would say in the words of the Apostle Paul, I beg of you today to be reconciled to God through the death of Christ. Turn from your sin, as Paul has commanded us to, and repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And he will save you. You will be saved. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, we thank you for the resurrection and all of its implications for believers and for unbelievers. We pray, O God, that you would confirm in our hearts again that truth and make us as believers to rejoice in that. And if there are unbelievers here this morning, we pray that you would draw them to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Grant them faith and repentance that they may believe upon him and that you would be pleased to save sinners for the glory of your own name. Thank you that our standing before you as in righteousness on the day of judgment does not rest upon our own deeds or our own works, but upon the righteousness and the works and the deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you in his name. We praise you in his name. And we rejoice in his resurrection. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.